welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is the podcast for people who enjoy media about the Punisher. But no, not to date a guy in a Punisher t-shirt, because he's probably a Republican. This is your host, Elon Eleven, <laughs> a.k.a. Elana Brooklyn. Today's topic is The Punisher Season 1. I was extremely pleasantly surprised with the show. Uh, I'm joined by Sean T. Collins. Sean is the co-editor of the comics and antho- an art anthology Mirror, Mirror 2, and a critic for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, Vulture, Decider, and many publications. He's absolutely one of my favorite critics working today. And if you are a Game of Thrones fan, his podcast, Boiled Leather Audio Hour, is a must-listen. So here's the thing. I wasn't going to watch The Punisher, let alone review it. I've said many times that Punisher is supposed to be an antagonist and that any show centered on him is going to make him into a hero. And what does The Punisher do, at least in the comics? So when I was at the Delaware Beach, I saw all kinds of merchandise with the so-called Blue Lives Matter flag, which is a pro-fascist symbol imposed with the Punisher logo. There's been news stories about cops putting the Punisher logo on their cars it's literally a symbol. The skull logo is literally a symbol used by fascists. So I, I was worried that the show would actually inspire that iconography to spread in a really dangerous way. And it, you know, that really ended up not being what the show was about at all. It's a mini miracle, if you ask me, uh, that's, that it's as great as it is. And Sean's reviews for The Decider, which he did um, the the weekly, not the weekly write-ups, but the... Uh, the, well, um, it's recaps in the parlance of our times, but I don't yes, like thank the parlance you. of our times. But yes, that's what they are. That's thank you. That the recaps for the decider are what convinced me to give the, the show a shot. So since Sean hates war and racists just as much as I do, and he really enjoyed the show too, that was the endorsement I needed to hear. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. So my first question, uh, before we get into the spoiler section, I wanted to first give folks who are doubters the way I was a sense of you know what why they should watch the show. Uh, so for folks who aren't sold on it, uh, why why do you think it's a good show to watch? Well, I think you have to start by talking about John Bernthal, who plays Frank Castle, the Punisher. A lot of the Marvel Netflix shows rise and fall on the strength of the cast. And in general, they've done a very good job getting interesting work out of a whole range of actors. From Marshal Ali, who went on to be like Oscar gold, yeah. uh, to, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio doing one of the... Uh, weirdest supervillain turns and I mean that in a very good way because normally supervillains especially in Marvel are quite dull uh, as Kingpin and I think Frank Castle is is and John Bernthal as Frank Castle that's as good a match between actor and role as you're going to find particularly if you take Frank Castle in the direction that they sort of took him which is as a Wounded Warrior obviously has its own meanings in culture, but I kind of classify him with Sandor Clegane, the Hound, Mm. from Game of Thrones, and Hansi Dent from Fargo Season 2, and Richard Harrow from Boardwalk Empire as these people who were trained to fight as a way of life uh, for their country and discovered that the ideals that they were taught they were fighting for were bullshit and it really brought them nothing but misery to do this to people but it's unfortunately the only thing they're any good at anymore and Bernthal has like a soul to him 
you know, he looks like he looks like a palooka. You know, he looks like a, a a prize fighter who's a few years past his prime. Despite being extremely handsome, I don't mean that. I just mm-hmm. mean he just has a he just has a world weariness to him. Yeah, and it and it works very very well. And I think because that really tells you the direction that they go that they go the whole series goes, which is that it's not. I mean, I had the same concerns you did, obviously. Punisher, you look around, there's Blue Lives Matter Punisher things, which is hilarious when you think about it. Because mm-hmm. um wasn't it crooked wasn't it crooked cops who killed his family anyway? It was certainly wasn't at least one of the versions of the character. Yeah, it was. And yeah. in the show he kills cop I mean mm-hmm. cops get killed, like yep. and it's just a thing. Yeah, and it just took a real a there was no it wasn't about like uh, one last honest cop, you know, his hands tied by the system. He's finally had enough. He's standing up to it. You know, it's not Death Wish or Dirty Harry or, you know, really anything like that at all. It, this is like a sad, broken person who's like running amok because he was trained to run amok by the military, which in the Punisher series is shown consistently to be as corrupt and criminal and murderous as anything else that anyone faces in the entire Marvel uh, Netflix universe, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it it is to have taken a franchise that has this built-in fascist fan base, you know, as you discussed, and to make it basically impossible for them to enjoy it, or at least to get that out of it. I'm sure a lot of people with Blue Lives Matter Punisher flags uh, watched The Punisher and enjoyed it because they just didn't think that deeply about it. Yeah. You know, but if you are really looking for something that speaks to your concerns as a fascist, as a, or as a Blue Lives Matter person, this wasn't it. This was, this ran in the face of it, which I think is really, really impressive and almost it's like a feat it's like a labor to have done that you know Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah the the performances and the writing are are really amazing and the cinematography it, it just knocked my socks off in so many episodes yeah it's a i would say that most of the marvel netflix shows have some visual flair to them and the Punisher's no exception. Um, they handled certain things very, very well. There was a, in particular, I'm thinking of a, there was a sort of traumatic raid that Frank Castle participated in when he was in Afghanistan on like an enemy compound or whatever. And mm-hmm. there's a montage, an extremely disorienting montage of him basically gunning his way and stabbing his way and punching his way through this house full of guys who are trying to kill him and just getting more and more upset and like screaming and yelling and and there's weird fades and jump cuts and stuttering and there's um what is it uh i wish it was true by white buffalo white buffalo yeah Yeah. i looked it up yeah um you know an extremely sad and cynical country's outlaw country song about returning home as a veteran and realizing that you're, you're, the war you fought in was a lie and that nobody gives a shit about you. Uh, you know, a current, you know, about the current conflicts that we're involved in. Mm-hmm. And that was a great example of, like, the cinema, the, the filmmaking, the use of music, found music, 
the performance, the action choreography, and the ideology of the show all kind of walking hand in hand to show that the pun- it didn't take the Punisher's family getting killed to turn him into the Punisher. It just took joining the military, you know. Oh, yeah. And now we're now now hopefully folks are sold and we'll get into the spoiler part. So yeah, from yeah. hence on out here to be spoilers. Um, and another piece of that is just how much the show has so much doubling between the Punisher and some of the other main characters. Um, like there's a number of episode titles which sort of point to that. Like Two Dead Men is initial, you know, second episode is really framed as the Punisher is dead because of what has been done to to him by the system and the fact that he's had to erase himself from public view in order to survive the, you know, uh, micro who for the record is the only major Jewish character in any MCU related property. Um, Yep. I did the count. Uh, my and uh, micro is a dead man because he had to go underground to protect his family because he had to do and like tell on the national security state uh, but then, you know, and so there's a lot of parallels between them, you know, you know Punisher's family dies, Micro's family lives, and there's this other great dual- duality between Punisher and um, and uh, really Russo, who, you know, the show sort of posits from, granted from out of nowhere, that this is his best friend in the military, and they both had completely different, they both were traumatized, but they both had completely different approaches to what to do after the war and also how to extricate themselves from it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, you mentioned this in, in your, in your reviews, but it's the, the funny thing with his performance is that even though his heel turn is, it's not even a heel turn, he's been bad all along, is completely obviously going to happen from the show's narrative structure. Mm -hmm. He's such a good salesperson of what he's saying that you have moments where you, where you doubt that that might be true at first. Yes. Yeah, and this is a great point about to get to back to the acting, if you don't mind, for a second. Please, um, Billy Russo, the the who winds up being sort of the arch nemesis, who is in the Black Ops, uh, whatever it is, with with Frank Castle in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. that was basically a front for running drugs um, for their bosses. Uh, he's played by Ben Barnes, who plays a similarly like handsome scumbag type character in Westworld, but there's just nothing going on with that character in Westworld until sort of the very end of season two where um, you see a side of him you haven't seen before. But until then, he just sneers. The right, because there's no writing. The writing's not there. Mm. And you're right. It's so clear that he's a bad guy, and you know that he's going to be the arch enemy. I mean, you just know it. You know it. But he's interesting enough and given enough to do and have enough sh- and show enough sides of himself, like just different. He's not just mean to everyone all the time for no reason. Uh, you know, he's, he seems like in a way he actually does care about Frank and, and about um, agent Madani, who's the uh, D- uh, DHS agent that he starts dating for a while. Um you know, but he just happens to be, he cares more about money and, you know, and the criminal enterprises that make him money in the end. And, and, and he's a survivor and that's the other yeah, thing. Like, yeah. 
But like, I, I thought that was so interesting where the episode, I mean, one of the great sequences, episode seven and episode eight are my favorites, just for the record. But anyway, episode eight, he's like sort of begins having almost this like American psycho moment of um, he's like physically arming himself with his like beauty routine to face the world for the day. And like, what yeah. is he going to do? And he's not going into negotiations with another business. He's going to go and basically torture his abusive mom. Um, and and that's also the episode where we learn about his, the abuse he had endured as a child. And so it's like it's like the episode where you're like, he is a psycho killer. Also, he's an abuse victim. Right. And uh, yeah. I, I'm. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's just. They, they, they took the time to make him a person, which I think is really crucial to drama and particularly superhero stories. I think most of the best ones that you can think of, the villains are basically sort of co-protagonists, you know, mm-hmm. and that that's true in almost any medium, you know, the, the, the reason people talk about like, like for in the X-Men, like the Magneto is basically a character. He may not be a member of the team, but he's important to understanding how that team works and how that franchise works. Same mm-hmm. with, you know, a lot of Batman's villains. I guess I would say probably the Joker in particular, but certainly several more. Mm-hmm. Um, or Lex Luthor and Superman, things like that. And to their credit, although I think there have been mixed results, all of the Marvel Netflix shows do that. They all treat their villains as people who you wouldn't necessarily mind like following around in an episode dedicated to them and give right. them and, and add some like meat to the bones of those characters. They're not just what you have in the movies of uh, the Marvel movies, which is usually just some sort of generic big bad who's either the opposite number of the hero or some outer space tyrant. <laughs> and no matter who they cast, it's pretty much the same, you know, I mean, Lee Pace was in one of those movies. Uh, people I can't even remember. Like, <laughs> Lee Pace was like Ronan the Accuser, wasn't he? Yeah, it was, and, it was really a waste. And who was Malekith, the uh, the dark elf? That's oh, another good yeah. Was it Was it Mads mm-hmm. Mickelson? Christopher, Eccle- Christopher, Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. Mads Mickelson was in one of them, too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yes, he was. He was in Strange, and it was just really mis- misused. I didn't even see Strange, so but I mean that's the thing. I couldn't. I, yeah. You know, it's like you could have told me he was in. Yeah, he was in the third Thor movie, and I'd be like, oh, okay, sure. You know, like <laughs> I have no idea. It doesn't really matter for the most part. Um, and and the the Netflix shows have done a better job of that, and you need it. You you know you you need to feel like you're watching a real thing and not. Um, you know, someone, you know, not just an expensive version of Rock'em Sock'em Robots, you know. God, yeah. I mean, I. speaking of characters where it's, you have a lot of concern and feeling for them, but what they're doing is terrible. I mean, Lewis, who's like the most wounded of all veterans, mm. really, we see. Um, I, you know, there were moments where there would be the beginning of a Lewis scene and I would just say to myself, I don't want to watch this like can we have the next one but it's so important anyway um i mean the actor did a tremendous job uh for folks who are forgetting because part of me part of the reason we're doing this episode is because season two is coming up soon and we know a lot of folks will need a refresher so i'm going to try to remember to say who the hell i'm talking about if it's been a while since you've watched it but lewis is the young veteran who's who um almost kills himself almost shoots his dad by accident and then goes on 
a terrorism rampage through the city. Um, you know, like the media sets Lewis up as being the same as Punisher. And, you know, he's like incredibly arguably the same as the same as him, um, even though they were not actually in cahoots at all. Um, and I think like Lewis was an important component of the plot, even if it was sometimes uh, not necessarily what I wanted to see in that moment. And, you know, his interactions with the like stolen valor veteran who, I mean, we knew he wasn't in Vietnam. He was just too young, frankly. And that kind of NRA flag waving type is usually full of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and when, and when, and when, uh, stolen valor guy like leaves him to just get arrested by the NYPD for flyering. Lewis, I mean, uh, he's played by an actor named Daniel Weber and he is, you know, a younger veteran who's uh, just extremely just in the in really in the depths of PTSD and depression and cannot function back home now that he's home at all. And he tries support groups and they don't work and he, you know, comes very close to killing himself on a number of occasions, um, accidentally killing his dad almost. Um, he digs a hole at one point in his backyard to live in because he can only feel comfortable in those kind of like cramped quarters and dug in. Um, and it's like a so foxhole, but it's also yeah, a grave. Yeah. Right? And there's so much of this material before he starts doing anything sort of grandiose and dangerous to society there are just so many scenes of just this kid by himself or in the support group that's run by another friend of uh, Frank's who's one of the few people who knows he's still alive following, I think, the events of Daredevil season two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, this, the material is strong enough to be in a just a drama where there is nobody with a cool code name who, like, fights people for a living, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I really thought it was almost unnecessarily well done considering <laughs> you know what they could have gotten away with the show being and i think that's kind of the story over and over again i mean you, you, i feel like i'm sort of in this recursive loop where i'll talk about one aspect of the show and then i'll say and then that was really good it was better than it needed to be just like this thing and just like that thing but that's kind of how it worked um it, it was just repeatedly more interesting more humane more detailed more driven by recognizable human concerns and human behaviors than it needed to be. Now, there's always going to be a hard line in superhero stuff about how relatable and believable and recognizable, I guess that's really the word to use, as human it can get because just there are no superheroes and there really aren't any costumed vigilantes, not in the punisher batman mm -hmm. kind of sense you know so everyone's taking a sort of leap of faith not just about whatever science fictional or fantasy aspects are involved but just in the basic premise of like do people who are sufficiently motivated uh, train themselves put on a costume come up with a cool nickname and go out and fight crime they don't so you're always going to have to take a little bit of a flyer with that Putting that aside, though, uh, this show did everything it could to make everything else as sound and, and um, to, you know, and fleshed out as, as it could be. You know, there's, 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 there's Lewis, 
there's Billy Russo and how much better that character is than it could otherwise be, or that similar characters played by that actor have been. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, there's Micro. Um, who's played by Eben Moss Backrack, who was uh, the horrible, horrible, Marnie's horrible boyfriend in later seasons of Girls, uh, who's maybe like the single best satire of like Williams bro culture ever just like the most lethally toxic dude and uh here he is completely like playing completely against that type he's a family man he's uh you know has a career in the NSA that he turns on when he realizes when he comes across evidence of like criminality so here again you're taking a show that is has a built-in blue lives matter fan base and making one of the heroes Edward Snowden or yes. slash Chelsea Thank Manning. You. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, again, why? Because you're thoughtful writers and filmmakers, I guess, and thought that would be interesting, and you were right. And um, yeah. yeah. No, that performance was so good, too. And actually, this gives me, I want to shout out one particular, and it seems small, but it's really not, way in which I really loved how they used micro. Like, I, I'll, first, I'll just try back to say, like, the scene where Frank is drinking with, a micro's wife sarah and you can tell that she wants him to kiss her mm-hmm. that whole scene had me as nervous as a fight scene because oh, yeah. i was that scared about what would happen from that particular piece of interpersonal contact as i would have been from a fight breaking out and they have great chemistry right and mm-hmm. he really brought her excessively nice flowers but what i loved <laughs> i mean like for christ's sake but what i loved is when he gets back to their hideout what david is doing is like drinking heavily and not actually trying to instigate a fight. In fact, instead, you know, instead of instead of actually having a fight, he like recognizes why the situation was the way it was, that both Sarah and Frank acted as best they could in this preposterous situation. And like they start sharing stories about how they met their wives, you know, and I, I love that, like they're like, what is it? This is how we're dealing with this. This is how we're dealing with this. <laughs> and it's getting drunk and sharing feelings is such a big improvement over the usual narrative, which would have been getting in a fight, right? Yeah, because they really painted themselves into a corner with that whole storyline. You know, Micro, uh, he is he faked his own death because he thought it was the only way he could. Well, I mean, he was actually they did try to kill him. They did try to shoot him, and, yeah. and you know, and he fell off a pier or something. And he just swam away and hid and let his family think he was dead in hopes that this would keep the people that he and Frank are fighting from going after his family anymore, which is a terrible thing to do to your family. And, at the, you know, in the same breath that it's uh, really, uh, uh, you know, that's a lot to do for your family, um, mm. but it's also very cruel. And he's in a position where, you know, now that Frank is kind of checking in on her or whatever and has gotten to know her. And they obviously have some feelings for each other, for each other. It's not like he can do anything about it. He can't, at least as far as he's concerned for a long time, he can't just pop up and be like, Hey, I'm alive. Sorry. <laughs> Please stop flirting with my friend, the insane vigilante who shot a ninja warrior for daredevil. <laughs> 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 he can't, he can't, he can't do that, you know? So they have, they, they have the situation where it easily could have just devolved into like they're gonna have a fight about a woman and they're gonna have a falling out and blah blah blah, but they didn't. Like you said, it was much. They did something different and more interesting with it, 
And almost at every point in the show where they could have done something dull and stupid, they did something kind of cool or unexpected or they just tried a little bit harder. And, you know, I have this concept that I've used for many, many years about how there's certain roles and certain storylines in narrative fiction that basically exist as styrofoam packing peanuts. You know, you have the the thing that your show is about, that you want it to be about. You have the point B that you need your character to get to from point A. And you do a bunch of storylines and you introduce a bunch of supporting characters that exist just to make sure the show does the thing you want it to do or to get the characters from where you want where they are now to where you want them to go and they don't do anything else it's just they're inert you know they're just like a they just help you ship the show where you want it to go safely and on time and Mm -hmm. it's a waste you can make all those characters interesting you can convert them from potential energy to kinetic energy they're going to be there anyway right you need them to do all these things why not you know why not try harder than just having them do whatever the the rote sort of tropey thing is for that particular sort of person to do and there's so many instances like just tiny little very very minor characters like there's some functionary like he's a military guy but he's a nebbishy guy he's not like out and he's not doing wet work out in the field who's involved in the upper echelons of this sort of drug and gun running conspiracy and when you meet him, he's complaining to some woman about how hard it is to be as powerful as he is, and then she spills her wine, and then he, like, gets down on his hands and knees and licks it up, and you discover she's a dom. Um, it's so good. Yeah, and it's, like, cool, you know? I mean, the guy, he, he's in, he has, like, maybe ten minutes of screen time total, but they did something, he could have just been, like, just some obnoxious, like, you know, just sort of, like, a boring, lame you know, snide prick. Rope but then character, they, yeah. Right, yeah, but then they... Then no, they just, all the villains were good. Right, and then they're like, all of a sudden we're going to talk about power exchange and how, like, you know, people in powerful positions, you know, like to be submissive sexually sometimes. Although, like, I'll tell you, I was livid when it turned out that they killed her, you know? Like, she was just fucking doing her job, and she we find her with her neck sliced, and it's like, okay, there we have our required dead sex worker. That's you true. Know. No, you're right. But, um, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not what it's a thing they would do. Uh, oh yeah, you no, know, it's that, it's yeah. That that's that's the you know then that then that raises the question like you know should they have tried for, harder with that should they have come at that from a different angle so you don't wind up you know no matter how much it is the thing that those people would do mm-hmm. is there a way to do it that would help you avoid that unfortunate like you know oh dead sex worker kind of situation you know well i'll tell you definitely a character who could have been perfunctory but did an excellent job of doubling i get would be you know dina uh played by amber rose riva who's the dhs agent who's you know trying to follow up and uh, catch up and figure out what's happening with punisher and this season and her motivation is that her partner in afghanistan was killed and uh there was clearly a cover-up and her partner was an afghani police officer um and i you know i 
Mar- they, Mar- Marvel has been on a roll of introducing people who are specifically like Middle Eastern and Southeast Asian as law enforcement folks as a way to sort of counterbalance the you know the the, the cast and it's not necessarily the way the these any of these agencies actually look spencer ackerman was talking about that on our daredevil episode but um but she's a great character uh you know i loved her conversations with her mom the therapist they were super revealing i, I didn't know that actress at all came right, no right. And it was great to have like an actual persian accent yes. like by an actual persian person like right. and that's like the most persian i mean she's from persia i mean she's yeah. from iran right but like she's great she's fabulous um, but yeah, she was great. Yeah, too. she came out of nowhere. You're right, Amber Rose Riva, and and um, also pretty easy on the eyes, like most yep. of the people in the show <laughs> who are involved in romance and 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 sexual subplots. And um, I don't want to I don't want to drag us off in that direction if you're not ready to go there. No, let's actually. That actually was one of my bullet points. Is like we should talk about that. In a weird way, I don't think that's unusual for that whole the Marvel Netflix thing. I mean, I, you know, I think that uh, Matt and Karen is pretty hot on Daredevil um, to the extent that, you know, just, it's just tension there and it's, and there's more tension with Frank and, and Karen Page is played by Deborah Ann Wall, who has really, yep. really proved that she's a dynamite actor in oh, these yeah. shows. Um, that's really like that scene in the elevator after they like get through like this whole fucking debacle and everyone's gets killed. And they wind up like safe in an elevator for a second. They just kind of like lean on each other. It's like, woof, man, that's something. And um, <laughs> and and uh, Bernthal has great chemistry with her, and he has great chemistry with Jamie Jamie Ray Newman, who plays David's wife. And she has great chemistry with Evan Moss Backrack, who plays David. And uh, um, Amber Rose Riva has great chemistry with Ben Barnes. They have an incredibly hot sex scene at one point. And it's, you know, that happened in Luke Cage and it happened in Jessica Jones. Um, it's just, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm into it, man. I mean, what do you want me to say? Like, no, that's I think, it. I mean, I think, I think it's worth a shot. I personally think it's better than the other shows, frankly, when it comes, mm. when it came to that. Partially, like, I don't like, I'd never bought Daredevil with Karen, um, and I don't blame the actors. I, I blame the writing on that. I mean, I really do agree. Deborah Ann Wall is amazing. And I, in a lot of moments, I dislike the character Karen in a way that I don't have a problem with disliking her. Like, I think it's not at all at odds with the material for that. Um, but, you know, I, but I think Deborah Ann Wall is fabulous. But, you know, Karen has a way of making everything about her, even when it's not. Like, the, uh, the bombing threats, like, she, aside from her being a terrible journalist, like, the way she decides that the bomb threats are actually about her rather than about the newspaper itself is just incredibly self-centered, but believable. People are like that. I can understand why she would, you know, decide that they were about her, even though they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that was my interpretation of it. But but I yeah, but anyway, yeah, I just didn't buy her with Daredevil. And I, I thought that the show did this particularly well. I mean, yeah, there's just a lot of it. Hmm. And you're right. It's hard to sort of explain why in any, in any extensive yeah. detail, but they did. Um, I don't know if those are your thoughts on Karen, but I, I actually I would say that I thought some of the weaker thinking in this show was sort of around the, the politics with Karen. You know, the the senator who's on his gun control thing is 
it's not that politically intelligent how they wrote him. Um, I thought that the TV interview with her and him was really realistic in the way it was bad, but I doubt that they intended it to be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that the whole entire way gun control is framed in the show was not is pretty lazy thinking. I'm glad they remembered that she had a gun. And I believe everything Karen did was completely in character. Again, I'm not a big fan of a lot of things she does, even though I think she does doing a great job of performing them. Um, but that is one of the, I think, the stumbling blocks uh, for the show. Yeah, I mean, Karen... It may have been a mistake to address the issue at all, really, I think. Uh, I mean, I guess you kind of have to. It's the Punisher. He's the gun guy. Yeah. Um... But I don't know. I mean, you, you, Karen has a gun because uh, people have tried to kill her multiple times. And at, in one of these times, she stole the person's gun and shot him with it mm-hmm. and fled. And at the time of the Punisher, during the events of the Punisher, nobody knows this. Right. It's her, like, darkest secret. And the reason she gets her back up about gun control is because having a gun makes her feel in control. And I think it would have been interesting for the series to dig into the way anxiety and trauma and and just people who are susceptible to being afraid of a lot of shit gravitate towards uh, you know gun culture requires uncultivating enemies and in Karen's particular Mm. case she actually has enemies Um, but she's not dealing with that in a healthy way uh, in many respects Mm -hmm. certainly with you know lashing out at the gun control senator Um, and you know, who, who, who his own line of discussion was really weak and I could have done a better. Yeah, like, he was just a talk phony baloney, right? You could talk, and like the thing is, like as much as I like, I'm incredibly cynical about members of Congress, like you, people are sincere in their, in their desire for gun control and you yeah. could have written that sincerely. But, but as I said, you know, I mean, the, my thing with Karen with the gun is, yeah, exactly. Of course it makes sense that she has it, but we all know, well, at least you and I know statistically that you're more likely to injure yourself or someone you love with a gun than you are to actually stop a crime. Right. So it would have been a great way to actually acknowledge that reality and use that in the story. And, you know, it, it is sort of a thing where we do get this amazing gun competency porn, as it were, from all of the actions done by uh, by Billy and Frank, like, I mean, just what they're able to do is just, you look at it and you're like, damn, look at all those things they can do. But then you have to remind yourself, right, at the expense of everything else that happened, <laughs> that's been going on around them. Um, so I also see like why you might not want to have a thing where the woman is the one who's undermined with her ability to do it. But like, let, but let's, she's a civilian. She's mm-hmm. a civilian. She's just gonna freaking get herself shot. <laughs> that's what happened. One of the I, I want to talk a bit about like the ways you know, government agencies and CIA and military complex are played out here. Uh, there's this in, when Billy is inducting the um, the his new employees to working for his contractor company. He talks about he basically sells the his potential employees 
on their financial value. The government spent $50,000 training you. Are you making good on the investment the government made in you? And I just, that's a political piece that I, that I was thought was incredibly smart and hadn't seen coming and like wanted to applaud from the back benches. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was an amazing way to sell participating in this immoral venture on well-intentioned people who are desperate and probably all completely traumatized. Right. Yeah, I've seen that come up. It came up in um, Homecoming where Mm. they talk about just like, you know, just the tremendous – one of the ways they can kind of keep their hooks in you after you come home is by saying, look how much we value you. Look how much we – look at the money we put into you, you know. Um, you're an investment that your government made, and it's you know you have value as a monet as a commodity, you know like you're a car, yeah, um, or a tank I suppose, and uh, that's that's again, um, the show is very fast to um, you know, and I think uh, and and did a better job of this showing the way that capitalism and empire worked, you know, hand in glove. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's there's some private prison stuff in Luke Cage that I think was pretty clumsy and super villainy. You know, like, the private mm-hmm. prison has, like, mad scientists working in it. Um, <laughs> you know, this doesn't do anything like that. It's a mercenary company run by a guy who was doing bad shit when he was in the military and he's doing bad shit now that he's out of the military uh but now he can make a lot yeah. more money doing it um, and, and there's people doing bad things at every agent in every agency yeah nsa in yes. in, in the in the in the police a bit in um the military in the cia um you know and i mean and like the fact that wolf actually is the one who points out that intelligence gained through torture is not usable because people will say anything mm-hmm I was just like, ah, oh, yes, I'm glad you made that point, especially in a face of a show where people are about to torture each other for information for extended periods of time. Right. So it's sort of a weird thing because it's like Wolf is saying it and he's obviously a bad guy. Are mm-hmm. we supposed to <laughs> dismiss that or are we supposed to say yes? Because then we do just sort of see all that torture going on and people getting information from it. And yet the key incident that starts um, Dina's quest is her partner getting tortured for bad evidence for no reason because of racism and greed. Right. Yeah, and that's brutal. And Frank participated in that. And yeah. that's kind of the elephant in the room of the whole show. Before anything happened to his family, he was out there. You know, there was no... It wasn't like, oh, I wish I could have done something, but I would have been in danger. Like, no. Like, no more than anything else that anyone participates in in a group. You know, he was part of a, a, a unit that routinely kidnapped and tortured and then executed people. Routinely. I like... Yeah, and they and they say that in the show they're like and you know they call us the American tal- Taliban, which I thought was a great touch. Right, right. Oh God, I mean there there's um the sequence where you see the Anvil folks going after uh, Punisher and Gunner at you know Gunner basically being the person who took the tape of the illegal assassination of the completely innocent man. Um, uh, that whole scene, like you see these, you see the, um, the, the, you have the screen with multiple 
views of each of the mercenaries, what they're seeing as they're carrying out their mission. And the feel is so video game as each one of their like lights go black, but it's done in a way where you see that the person who's experiencing this as a video game is the man in charge. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a video game to the quote players, the, the men on the ground who are getting knocked off one by one. Like we're watching the predator mm-hmm. uh, in the jungle slash woods of West Virginia. Uh, the video game is just for the man with a control fantasy who I believe it's Wolf looking at this video for, no, the wolf is already dead. It's uh, it's Agent Orange looking at this video footage and having this control fantasy. Um, right. But I feel like that was a pretty deliberate choice to make it look like a, like a first-person shooter video game. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's probably part and parcel of the show being aware of how the fa- the character functions, similar to first-person shooters in culture, as a sort of mm-hmm. avatar of you know, uh, fantasies of righteous, redemptive violence against others. Which is so, again, so fucking weird. Like, there's so many characters who are, you know, who who are cops or uh, in the military or work for S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, who aren't a maniac. And it's really depressed, like, it's really telling and frightening that so many cops love the Punisher you know, who specifically does not have sanction to do what he does because they're all just fucking dying to do it. You know, that's really trouble. <laughs> yeah. That's like the most, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it's like, it's like, it's like seeing Freddy Krueger with a, bl- a black, a blue lives matter sweater instead of the normal <laughs> striped colors. You know, it's like, why, why you have cop characters like get real behind dirty Harry, you know? You don't, or whoever, like, you don't need that, but they want to go that extra mile. Right. Just, that's how, God, they're just dying to be able to kill people. And yeah. it's, it's very troubling. And, and I like that the show is able to make connections from what the show itself is and is about this Marvel character that has wound up having this bizarre second life as um, a symbol of, of sort of, um, unfettered state violence against uh, people who aren't white, basically. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and that was really what I was scared yeah. about the show. Is right. Look like. Jumping in to say that Punisher co-creator Gary Conway has repeatedly talked about how it's wrong for cops to use the Punisher symbol. He just gave an interview to Sci-Fi where he said, quote, it's as offensive as putting a Confederate flag on a government building, quote. And the thing is... I think the police deciding that this character, which is intended as a critique of the justice system, I mean, Gary Conway has specifically said in a whole lot of interviews that the character is a critique of the justice system, uh, that the police deciding that this character is their hero says more about how the police view themselves than it does about the Punisher's success or failure as a character. So the police's embrace of Punisher as a symbol is an indictment of the police. It's not an indictment of the character, the Punisher. Like, even though they were definitely not going to, even if it was Punisher against gangsters, quote unquote, it wasn't, I mean, they weren't going to just cast brown people. But the way that is rendered in the minds of the public of white people is still read as being people of color. Right. And I mean, honestly, Marvel has known, even since the 70s, not to just have their vigilante characters fight gangs of 
you know, monochromatic gangs, even if it's unrealistic. Yeah. When you look at back in those com- those comics, it's always like a rainbow coalition of dudes in vests with no shirts mm-hmm. underneath. You know, <laughs> that's who yeah. they fight, and and it's like they fight the warriors basically over and over yes. and over again. And um, you know, so it was clear that Marvel wasn't going to go in that direction. Marvel, I think, is generally relatively responsible about representation. You don't, if you dig any deeper than that. You run into trouble, I think, oftentimes. But I mean, they're still scared to have any LGBTQ heroes. That's a that's a big thing. And then also, you know, a, a giant corporation in the main is not going to make stuff that isn't generally compatible with the sort of prevailing yeah headwinds. You know, like by the, the you know the CIA did a thing that tied in with this actual literal CIA, not just Martin Freeman's character, did a Black Panther <laughs> Wakanda technology tie-in, you know, um, yeah, like the so, Northrop Gunnam, Northrop yeah, Grumman yeah. comic at New exactly. York Comic Con, which got pulled because people freaked out at them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes they go too far and and they fuck up. And and as you mentioned before, the shows always go out of. Just, even though I think on every single Marvel Netflix show, cops and intelligence agencies and the military are well, if not overrepresented among the bad guys, um, always it's always like entire entire precincts are corrupt and like basically serve as like the Kingpin's private army. Entire mm-hmm. FBI uh, units have been compromised. Entire military units like roam around killing people on behalf of like. They're like weird drug lord generals. Uh, there's the prison turned Luke Cage into the you know a superhuman by ex- like using him as a human guinea pig and putting him in in gladiator fights and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, even politi- you know politicians are corrupt. They take a very you know they they they're not trying to make you think that like they're the the authorities are always on your side by any stretch of the imagination, but they do like you said they always make sure that there's like there are some good cops there are some good members of you know dhs agents or cia agents and they're usually not white you know which is nice but also you're dodging something here yeah you know you're you're trying to get around the way power actually manifests exceptions aside you know you're doing the hire more woman guards thing um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that only gets you so far. But I do think that they, you know, baby steps. I don't know what to tell you. Like I remember even thinking in Daredevil, the first season of Daredevil. Like the plot is that Kingpin wants to gentrify, and the NYPD is helping him, and Daredevil mm-hmm. has to stop it. And I was just, I was like, that's kind of wild. You yeah. Know? Yeah. As someone who did organizing for affordable housing in Hell's Kitchen, I was very, very pleased to see personal <laughs> struggles brought in a larger scale in season one. Uh, who I was like, yep, us yep, Bloomberg. Relate. Yep. Yeah. Bloomberg supervillain. Um, yeah. No, it's these all these these things all really straddle those difficult those difficult lines. Um, I, I, you know, I also think this show was just really well constructed in terms of how the different pieces were put together. I have a big note that says Chekhov's K-Bar, which is it's connected to, you know, you have you have um, Billy trying to sorry, uh, Frank trying to do a tough talk to Dave's David's son, who's like super traumatized and becoming a bully because of his dad's death. 
you know, he pulls the knife on him to show what it'd be like to have a knife pulled on you. And then, you know, the boy reveals like, actually he's suicidal basically because he's in so much pain. And then they cut from that knife to, um, to, to Billy strapping on a knife to go into, uh, where he thinks Frank is going to be and get into one of the show's many warehouse fights. Mm-hmm. And we know because, you know, Punisher is talking about the importance of always having your knife with you and how that operates. And then Billy is putting his on like, okay, I, the knife, the, the K-bar is going to fill, is going to fit into some, the fight scene in some good way. And, right. and then it does, it's used in a reveal and it's perfect. Like I like being able to see those pieces in advance because it's, it's a well-constructed like thing to be able to watch and follow Another really beautiful piece of this, which I didn't know. Unfortunately, the fact that Billy was going to become Jigsaw was spoiled for me before I saw it. And I, mm-hmm. I really am wondering if I would have seen that particular thing coming or not. I give mad props to my husband, who, uh, for all of his current lefty politics, was a big fan of Punisher when he was a, a young teenager living on Long Island. Um like as soon as they get as soon as there's a shattered mirror in that carousel scene he says he's gonna be jigsaw isn't he and i said yes you are correct my dear um but uh but but you know what book the internet revealed to me and i confirmed the book that billy is reading um when in one of the kandahar flashback scenes a picture of dorian gray (laughs) outstanding i mean on the nose but wonderfully on the nose yep I mean, I guess I knew because I think I looked up the character's name and I was like, oh, it's Jigsaw. Um, right. Because that, you know. yeah, that is who he was there. But I didn't. I I, right. I just went into this being like, fuck it. I'm going to watch The Punisher now because yeah. two people I, whose opinions I trust told me to. Yeah. I mean, and you never can tell. I mean, obviously, they, the, the shows will do things very differently than the source material sometimes. Like the, the example I think of is in season one of Daredevil. Uh, things work out for Ben Urich very differently than they do for Ben Urich as a character in the comics, just for example. Oh, yeah. Much um, to my chagrin. Right, um, yeah. Uh, but you mentioned that your husband's lefty politics, but he was, used to be in The Punisher. You know, I dig The Punisher, too, for a couple reasons. First, um, personally, I have played it. I, I, didn't, I went for many years without playing any video games at all. I started playing video games again, and I discovered my fighting style in any game, whether it's Super Smash Brothers or Wolfenstein or anything where it requires fighting. I'm a brawler. I get in there, and I've, I want to fuck people up, even if it means, like, taking damage myself. So Punisher is a character that I connect with in that sort of visceral, like, vicarious way of, you know, what what does action – what is art based in physical action and violence – say to me or do for me or whatever. So I dig him in that way. The second way, the Punisher's costume is so goth. Yeah, it's you know? pretty flawless. <laughs> it's like, that's the, 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 the depressing thing to me. I mean, other than what it says about our, our, our decaying society, about Punisher logos becoming this sort of, um, you know, basically like an iron cross or something, is yeah. that um, the, it's a fucking skull on a black mm-hmm. outfit. Like, that's... Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like I, said, like I said to him when I saw all these like junior high pictures of like multiple Punisher t-shirts, I'm like, well, of course you like Punisher because he, much like you, is named Frank and wears a black t-shirt with skulls on it. Right. <laughs> which, exactly. Like, if, which is like, which, which, which he, you know, wears to this day because he's a metalhead. So, yeah, I, you know, I, and it's always been you know, one of Frank's points about my, I, I'm sorry, my husband, as opposed to fictional Frank, uh, a point <laughs> about his appreciation of Punisher as a, as a, as a, as a younger man 
was that you know if you're growing up watching 80s action movies he's he's the same as he's the same as any character arnold is playing right mm-hmm. i did yeah. not grow up watching 80s action movies i only got into them as an adult and i love them now i'm a huge fan of i, I really enjoy a lot of them and they're yep. a lot more com- politically complex than most people give any of them credit for but i wasn't drawn to that iconography well i love skulls because goth yes but i wasn't drawn to punisher iconography when i was younger because i was like here we have comics in which we have characters who are using violence in badass ways to solve problems but are not doing it in the same like i i just didn't like that particular way of organizing the structure and punisher just read as more racist to me than the others um i'm like why punisher when x-men you know but um but yeah, yeah i feel that you know, I mean, it, it, but but yeah, I'm not saying that if you like punishing your politics are bad. I'm just saying that that's often a thing that goes together. Yeah, yeah, that's not uh, determinative necessarily, but it's maybe yes. a warning sign. I don't know. Exactly. But he, perfect. Here, here's what I will say about this show. It was made by Steve Lightfoot, who is an an alum of Hannibal, one of the gothest mm-hmm. shows ever aired, uh, mm-hmm. which has spawned notably since then, um, American Gods. Uh, Channel Zero uh, by Nick Antosca, who's another Hannibal alum, and the show. And, like, in a way, I feel like it's reclaiming Punisher for the Goths a little bit. Just a little bit. Oh, that's so good. And, look, yeah. it has beautiful aesthetics. I just yes. wanted to sh- I wanted to shout out. There's a scene near the end. I think it's maybe, like, the third to last episode where Punisher has just, or maybe a second to last, has just, like, brutalized every last one of the guys Billy sent to get him in his hideout. And he's sitting on the floor. He's talking on a dead man's cell phone. And the floor is like hideous. And he is just so bloody and brutalized. And it looks like a Tomas Giarello painting. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was just like this beautiful bit of art there. Yep. They did that. They did that. They did that detail and they cared enough to, you know, to share that with us. Um, and I, like they, they, you know, Nine Inch Nails moment. They, like the whole thing with uh, with Lewis trying to get the caged parakeets to leave the apartment of the guard who he just killed, and the parakeets staying within there. I mean, happiness and slavery is a reference to something yeah. else, but I'm just like, my mind was like, I'm hearing the Nine Inch Nails song right, right. now. Right. And the parakeets don't want to leave because they're tame and it's cold outside. And why would they leave the safe space that they've known to go to this dangerous, unknown? outdoors of new york world one other piece of music actually and i thought that the show had way less music than i thought it was going to and marvel shows in general could do a lot more i think that would be worth them putting some money into frankly mm-hmm. i punisher is playing the guitar his acoustic guitar very soulfully in various moments throughout the show in a lovely touch um i kept expecting him to start playing one by metallica and i kept being disappointed when he didn't and I wasn't sure, like on the one hand, I expected him to play one because he is approximately our age and joined the military and is a white guy from Queens. So of right. course he listens to Metallica. Like, yes. I know how this works. I have, <laughs> like, I know you all. I, we're, we're friends. It's okay. Um, but uh, but he didn't. And I, but and then I'm like, why is this in my head? And then I, at Netflix, when I was doing some rewatching, played the trailer. And I said, oh, they used, they actually used bars of one in the trailer, the opening, the opening notes. Mm-hmm. But then they didn't use it in the show. But I was spent the whole show expecting that to happen. I don't know if you had the similar experience to that. that they but... should have said an entire hallway fight to the song and it's an entirety. You know, that's what I would God. You know, but the thing with one, the thing with Metallica, and I've written a bit about this on Twitter and I should probably write an actual essay at some point, is 
Metallica, most of their albums are incredibly cynical about government and anti-war. Like one of the big takeaway messages from Metallica's OVRA is that you shouldn't join the military. It's a bad idea because they don't care about you and you'll be brutalized. And what's incredibly popular music amongst white guys of a certain generation who are in the military? Metallica. Right. Um, yeah, I would I mean, also just, yeah. You know, Metallica has shifting valence with regards to war, you know. I mean, then they did Don't Tread on Me, the album after they did one, you know. So That's satire. I don't the Don't Tread on Me flags on the cover. I've never thought it was satire. I oh, I thought it was satire. I don't I I, well, I, who, I, really I mean, I, we have we would okay. have to I, I I reviewed the Injustice for All reissue recently for oh. Pitchfork. And uh, but I did not review the black album, so I'm out of. I, I have not done my research on the black album, and you may well be right. I'm I'm intrigued, and I'm looking forward to to reading your piece. Um, but it, yeah, I actually listened to Injustice for All a lot when I was getting ready for this podcast, even though it's actually the Metallica album I listen to least. Well, I'm not <laughs> counting the new ones that nobody likes, but right, I mean, right, right. the classic ones. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So Metallica sidebar. Um, I yeah, I don't know. I I I do feel like. Um, that would have been a great song to soundtrack the, uh, the 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 White Buffalo scene, but the White Buffalo song scene did really work well. I mean, that really is a, a brutal and powerful piece in there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one last thing about superheroes that I do want to hit on, which is Agent Orange. He is like I love that they bring out that he he's um, the Rollins a CIA agent who's like the really the big bad of the season. Um, is you know comes from a rich family who's always profited from military who's always been part of that military industrial complex and he's this man who wants other men to do his work for him um and you know he begins you sort of feel like he's this like yet another sort of nebbishy government evil like the banality of evil kind of guy but as the season progresses he really starts to lose his shit and with you know he has his like face the scars on his face for most of the time we see him because punisher punches him out um earlier but the way he's lit in those last episodes he looks like a world war ii nazi supervillain from the wonder woman comics and by the last episodes he has gone full supervillain monologue like he starts to deliver actual supervillain monologues and I didn't mind because they had really built towards that. It actually like, I'm like, yeah, that feels earned. But I just couldn't stop thinking like, wow, you really do like Baron Von Unter, whatever, from from Wonder Woman. Not mm-hmm. from the movie, I mean, from the comics. Um, right. That was just the face. Which brings me to, I think we should wrap up talking about season two. I, as much as the entire story like make, leading towards Ben Barnes, um, sorry, not Ben Barnes, uh, Billy Russo becoming Jigsaw is completely all in sense. Like I am always, or rather I've been trained by those more sensitive to the shit than me to be cautious of facial disfigurement being used as a metaphor for revealing the fact that someone is secretly bad all this time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't read Rollins that way. Um, but I don't know how it's going to be with Jigsaw in season two. And I would note that in the season two trailer we've seen, I think that that is all shot in a studio to promote season two and does not reflect anything we're actually going to watch. Uh-huh. 
I haven't you might know it. more about that. No, I haven't even oh. seen the, the trailer. Oh, for it. okay. Well, basically, in it, we do see the act. We do see Jigsaw without the bandages on, and he basically looks like a hot guy with some well-placed facial scars, which right. would certainly be a major life change. But like, is not is not what is not what the level of um, is not the level of 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 injury that the show set him up for, or that the comics have. Um, and I can't decide if I think it's good for Billy to still be handsome because I don't like the idea of disfigurement as a metaphor for somebody being evil, or if I think it's a cop-out. Like, I don't know how I feel. We'll have to wait and see. But I am cautious about, and I'm looking forward to getting opinions from people with like just facial disfigurement. Like, how are you, how do you feel about how this is handled in the show? So yeah, that in mind, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I remember from when I worked at Wizard, I think there was an internal debate as to whether Dr. Doom's facial scars should really be horrific. And so, you know, or if or if it's just or if it's minor and it's just his vanity. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good question. And I, I can see them maybe given what we know about I haven't seen the trailer, but given what we know about the character, just even looking a little bit roughed up, I'm sure would bother him tremendously. Uh, it would stop people from calling him pretty, which is one of his triggers, though. Like, if you're yeah. him and you're going from being called pretty to looking more like badass, but not gro- but like still handsome, mm-hmm. like that. Mm, I mean, anything happening to you that you're not in control of is trauma. But like that actually, I don't know. I, I we'll have to see. So, yeah. What are you thinking about for season two? Um. The main thing I was just thinking is that this time this year there were six different Marvel Netflix shows and The Punisher's The Last Man Standing. That's yeah. amazing to me. I, I understand why it's happening corporate-wise. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really – I don't know. I just hope it's good. I guess I don't go into with too many expectations for these kinds of things, you know? I just kind of sit down, start watching, start taking notes, and be like, "All right, you know, I'm ready to be entertained." And um, I find professionally that's usually the best way to approach it, because then I'm not uh, reviewing something based on the idea that I formulated in my head, mm-hmm. and you know, which is unfair and off, and sometimes much less interesting than what I get. Sometimes it's better, but <laughs> um, you know, I'd rather just kind of. I like going in as cold as possible, and I've always been that way for really almost anything. So, yeah, it's I, that's usually the how I approach it too. But this trailer came on autoplay, and so I ended up watching it. <laughs> very end of the show, I think it's the last line. Mm-hmm. I haven't revisited it very often. I should have just reread everything that I wrote. That's very convenient when you want to refresh your memory. So if you reviewed every single episode, is that he says I'm scared, which again flies in the face of what people go to the Punisher for culturally. They want a guy who's not afraid. You know, he's going to stand up to all the... They want Travis Bickle, basically, yeah. uh, but to treat him like a hero uh, instead of a monster. And the show just, like... You know, he's in a support group saying that he's scared. Like, that's fucking wild to me. That That is... That's really wild to me. I've never seen the Punisher do that or say that in any circumstance. And, uh, 
you know, and I don't think it's letting him off the hook. I don't think it's trying to make him be like a lovable, uh, you know, that you have to support his kill crazy rampages because he's hurting inside. <laughs> I, I, I do think that the show, uh, you know, so many of those, so many of those real massacre sequences, he's basically like Jason, you know, or, or, or Michael Myers in just slashing his way through ranks of people in a very violent and horror driven way. So they want you to think that it's horrific. I think that's very clear, but to yeah. end on, to end on this note anyway, and to sort of try and, you know, and the punctuation mark you're putting on the whole season is that, uh, like we like we were talking about earlier, a lot of this kind of mindset stems from being afraid, whether you're, uh, traumatized or, um, you know, just afraid of other kinds of people in a, in a sort of racistly neurotic way, or you're anxious and paranoid and conspiratorial about the world and people being out to get you. Like, that's where violence, like, violence festers in that, or can at least, or at least the mentality that condones violence against the right people. And so I, I, I don't think it's trying to have your cake and eat it too i think it's just trying to bake a better cake thank you yeah that's beautiful well said i mean the fact that frank we end the series him saying for the first time in a long time i don't have a war to fight and i'm scared and he's in he's in like talk therapy yeah basically yeah (laughs) what the world needs now and i would also (laughs) say i mean as an aside you know i'm going to cover season two um and i'm talking actually I'm trying to find uh, some veterans to actually talk about the series with. And most of my friends who are vets did not watch the show because they thought it would be too violent for them. Mm-hmm. Like that was not like a critique of the show from them. They weren't saying this show is bad and shouldn't exist. But they were just saying, I personally can't watch it because it's too violent. Right. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, where should our listeners find your works and upcoming Punisher writings for the etc well i'll be covering season two for decider.com again so you can stay tuned for that when the show starts i'm excited to start watching it i have the screeners and um i haven't started watching them yet though uh uh, you can find me on twitter at the sean t collins and you can go to my website which is sean uh sometimes a little slow but i do post links to every single thing that i write for all the other outlets i write for and there's quite a few and I am uh, currently, my big project this year, speaking of 80s action movies, which we were at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I am going to write an essay a day about the film Roadhouse. I, I love it. <laughs> They're amazing. I've enjoyed every one of them. Thank I'm you. so glad that I ended up watching Roadhouse like, like recently, like for the first time. Um, and I, folks, like I, I don't care if you care about this movie or not. Like just as writing and thinking about film, I freaking love these essays. Go read the Roadhouse essays on Sean's website. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, they, they are spoilery a bit, obviously, but you can't spoil Roadhouse. The experience of Roadhouse, watching, actually sitting and watching Roadhouse is unspoilable. The more you hear about it, the more you just like, I got to see this movie. And then you, I've never known anyone to be disappointed by it, ever. It's just, it's magnificent. I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. I'm writing about it every day for a year, so I guess that kind of tells you how I feel about it. 
Yeah, I love that type of exercise, and 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 I'm enjoying reading it greatly. Thank you. Well, thanks again for our listeners. Um, I don't know which order these episodes will be released in. Uh, it's possible the next thing you'll hear from me is an interview with comics writer Leah Williams, who's been doing amazing work writing X Men titles. Or it's possible this is airing after that. I don't know. Uh, but we will be covering season two as well. And thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Ilana Brooklyn, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Graphicpolicy.com for all your comics, news, and reviews. Um, and thank you for joining us. I'm looking forward to see, having you uh, next time. Thanks, Keep Ilana. Geeky. You thank too. You. Bye-bye. You too.